1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average
0: 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award.
2: And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to.
0: And the Oscar goes to. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. I'm the king of the
3: world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
0: I'm Katie Richie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here on the line, as always, with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Hello. Uh, I was told last week by a friend and a listener that when I started the episode saying we had lost Mike Hogan, that it caused uh, unnecessary panic on the part of the listeners. So <laughs> we're all here in one place. Mike is fine and in good health. Um, just couldn't I'm make found. it last week. <laughs> Sorry about that, everyone.
3: Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, So we have um, a lot of things to talk about this week. Our Little Gold Men Essentials rewatch series continues with Network, which I think might be both the most cynical and the most timely movie we discussed in this ongoing series. Uh, We also have Richard interviewing Hong Chow, the actor who you might remember from Downsizing or from Watchmen, who is talking about her new film, Driveways. And we're going to check in with uh, Anthony Bresnikan and Joanna, our resident Star Wars experts, um, who are marking May the 4th, which is, of course, Star Wars star wars day with a look back at the rise of skywalker but first i wanted to talk to each other just a little bit about our quarantine viewing which i think we've made a um, semi-regular tradition um i haven't been watching much by way of like new movies or tv shows but i did watch the Steven sondheim tribute which i think might be the best television event i've seen all year um joanna i know you at least watched part of it as well um were you as moved by this as i was Oh, my God. I was elbow deep in Westworld coverage.
4: And when I pulled out of that, my Twitter was all abuzz with this thing that I had not even known was happening. And I was like, what? So I caught the end and then I circled back and caught the whole thing. And then I have been admittedly (laughs) rewatching my favorites. Uh, It's so good. Uh, If you're a Sondheim lover, it's so good. And then I think even if you're not, you know, there's just like fun appearances from people that we love singing from their homes like what what could be more well there's plenty of things that could be more fun probably but in quarantine what could be more fun so um yeah I thought it was incredible
0: what have been your choice rewatches um obviously so you know
4: Meryl Streep Christine Baranski and Audra McDonald did the ladies who lunch uh you know in fluffy white bathrobes and like pouring drinks for themselves that was incredible but there are other you know more classical like chip zine chip i don't know how you pronounce his last name who's from the original into the woods cast singing my favorite song from into the woods that they cut from the movie by the way um and mandy patinkin singing outside in a park with his dog and um jake gyllenhaal and annalee ashford doing one of my favorite songs from sunday in the park with george those are some of my highlights
0: uh, I was a fan of, uh, I've never seen Sunday in the Park with George, but uh, Michael Cerverus doing um, Finishing the Hat. He was, I think he was in Sweeney Todd on Broadway. He's got a, a background there. Uh, and yeah. then um, Beanie Feldstein and Ben Platt doing It Takes Two from Into the Woods was um, so wonderful. I think we're a strong so cute. Beanie Feldstein fan podcast. Uh, yeah, there's, a, I mean, you can watch the whole thing on Broadway.com's YouTube page. So you can kind of skim along to any of the numbers that you want to catch. Um, Richard and Mike, have you guys watched any of this?
5: Oh yeah, I saw some of it. Um, like Joanna, I didn't really know it was happening until all of Twitter apparently, or at least the people I follow. Um, <laughs> so I, I kind of watched it through Twitter, I guess, which meant that I saw like eighteen thousand gifts of Meryl Streep with a martini shaker doing "Ladies Who Lunch" <laughs> from Company with Christine Baranski and Andre McDonald. on gay Twitter. Donna Murphy singing "Send in the Clowns" was particularly uh, a big yes. deal with a with a single yeah. candle flickering in the background. That was a nice touch. But it, I would just say, it, like in a general sense, like it was really it's really interesting watching people figure this out you know like mm-hmm. like the quality was just that much better and it was like and yes granted there were technical delays I'm told that delayed it about an hour like the the broadcast but in the actual you know filmed segments things felt a bit more professional and it's just like you know I guess this, the, oh, the entire entertainment industry is figuring this out with actually kind of a quickness like kind of the, the the second you know SNL at home they did this past weekend was like a lot more polished than the first one they did and yeah, so this little scrappy kind of new system is is really kind of finding its groove, I think.
0: Yeah, they did a pretty remarkable thing in the beginning. I think it was the overture to Merrily We Roll Along, uh, which oh, I mostly yes. know from from being in Ladybird. Um, But they had all these orchestra players playing their parts and some um, incredible feat of editing. They put it all together and had them all in time. And they, like, you know, at one point had, like, a grid of all the instruments on screen together. And it was really moving to see how they pulled it all together. Like, these people playing alone in their houses, learning how to keep time together, these, you know, uh, incredible editors making it all work. I was really surprised to be emotionally grabbed before anyone even started singing.
3: Did Adam Driver sing Being Alone in the Basement of P.J. Clark's in Lincoln Center? (laughs) That would have been good.
0: If only. only.
3: I'm relieved to know that none of you knew it was coming because I, yeah, I suddenly was like, looked at Twitter and everybody was looking at it. But I was in the middle of something else, so I actually um, finished, you know, my rewatch of season one of The Wire, and then went right to binging um, the latest season of Better Call Saul. So I have not gotten into it. But as a confirmed theater nerd, or maybe recovering theater nerd, who literally played was in played the wolf in Into the Woods in college, I do want to go back and, and look at it. But I I hated that first um, thing, honestly, with the John Legend concert and all the rest of it. Um, So I'm glad to know that they're getting better at it because I thought that thing was just like unwatchable. So I have had a bit of an aversion to these like Zoom shows.
4: Well, I think the fact that it was a 90th birthday celebration for Stephen Sondheim and a fundraiser for a step, which is this uh, organization that um, is about artists fighting poverty, you know, like, so it was a fundraiser and a celebration of a genius. So they felt like double emotional value in doing this. And sort of the heartfelt messages from people, and also the the fun, silly anecdotes of people who, you know, from like Jason Alexander or whoever who has like worked with Steven Sondheim for years and years and years. And so, it had an added purpose to it um, that I felt like really anchored that.
0: Yeah, Steven Spielberg showed up because, you know, he's directing West Side Story um, and he credited Sondheim with knowing more about film history than he said, like, than me and Marty Scorsese combined, which is really that's impressive if that's actually true. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, there's definitely something about the tone of like celebrities praising a bona fide living genius, like standing up to praise Steven Sondheim is pretty easy to do rather than being like, please help us raise money for something. There's something about the, um, the vibe of that that's different and easier to pull off, I think.
3: Well, after The Wire and um, and Better Call Saul, I, I kind of need something, some kind of mental break. So maybe I yeah. will check this out.
0: Yeah, go watch Ladies Who Lunch. That's I, I was a... going
3: to a very dark place <laughs> in my living room.
0: Is this your, is this your first time with The Wire, Mike?
3: No, I I admit that I never finished season four or watched season five the first time through. So I'm going to fix that. But season one is just a masterpiece.
0: I assume it holds up pretty well on rewatch.
3: It holds up incredibly, although I feel like we all know too much now about Dominic West. And but it actually helps <laughs> in a way the show because the first time watching it, I thought his character, Jimmy McNulty, was just like a pure hero who was thwarted by the system. And for some reason, having watched The Affair now, I'm, by the way, Dominic West seems kind of like an interesting, cool guy. He's got He's married some Irish aristocrat. There's like really funny pictures of them on the internet if you ever go down that hole. Um, <laughs> But second time through, I'm like, okay, this character has a lot of problems. Like with other people who hate him, they have somewhat of a reason. They're still monsters, but there's a reason. Anyway, so that's the whole issue. Uh,
5: I believe our sister publication, Architectural Digest, did a video tour with Dominic West of the Irish castle he and his wife live in. Um, Oh, my God. I think it's 80, and it's a pretty interesting video because Tom and is like, yeah, I don't know how I ended up living
2: here. here,
3: here, I know, and in some of these pictures, he'll be wearing like a, you know, satin, lavender, you know, vest uh, under like, you know, with like a top hat. You know, he's like an aristocrat now,
0: uh, which is really weird. Jimmy McNulty. Who would have guessed? Jimmy McNulty. This is like
4: Ray Ann Graff from my so-called life being like a countess or whatever she is now. Right. Yeah.
0: yeah. (laughs) Maybe that's a slideshow of uh, television stars who became royalty that you didn't know
3: about that. I mean an Irish aristocrat I can say this an Irish aristocrat <laughs> yeah. so don't go too crazy
0: um, well I was gonna um, use Patty Lapone to pivot from Sondheim because she was on the Sondheim tribute though I don't remember what she sang I think she, she showed up very late at the end um, she did a
4: she did a song from anyone can whistle and every person who picked a song from anyone can whistle I'm like I see you you're trying to be like a snob, a Sondheim
0: snob. Well, um, if, anyway, if anyone gets away with it, I guess it's Patti Lapone. It's, um, it's true. But uh, Patty Lapone, you can also see on your small screen later this week on Ryan Murphy's Hollywood, the big new Netflix series. I imagine it was very expensive because it looks very expensive. It's this period piece kind of set in the studio era at a fictional studio um, and kind of, uh, uh, I, would, I guess, a Ryan Murphy spin on classic Hollywood. Um, Richard, you're reviewing it for us this week. So what's your take on it?
5: Yeah, I believe the one of the taglines on, on some of the, the ad art is, what if you could rewrite the story? And so I think part of that is that it's Murphy insisting a lot of people of color and openly queer people into a world where those people existed, certainly in, in real history, but did not have the power, I think, that he is trying to give them in this movie, or this, this series, rather. Um, even though, of course, they do face a lot of obstacles. But yeah, the show is... Typically Murphy esque in that it tackles some serious thing, but it's things, but it's also like about you know male gigolos and um, you know Patty LaPone getting her freak on and like you know there's like all this kind of very like over the top Murphy stuff in addition to the kind of actual look at Hollywood of the day, and I guess you know the gigolo stuff is partly inspired by um,
0: Scotty Scotty Bowers
5: Scotty Bowers, thank you, um, who was you know supposedly the kind of romantic fixer for a lot of um, closeted Hollywood.
0: And worked out of a gas station, which, or at least a gas station is part of his legend, which I imagine is where um, the gas station in Hollywood came from.
5: Yeah. So Murphy takes that real thing and then kind of just extrapolates. And, um, you know, what I've seen of it, I haven't watched enough to feel comfortable to write my review yet, but what I've seen is interesting. It has that kind of antic Ryan Murphy energy, but it feels better directed that energy than it does in The Politician, which is his other big scripted Netflix show, which, you know, I think did okay, but not maybe good enough to merit the huge payday that Murphy got from Netflix when he um, decamped from FX to them. So there, I think, you know, a lot of eyes are on this. Though, as a friend pointed out, um, interestingly, Murphy's name is not on a lot of the advertising. Which might be an indication maybe that Netflix is getting a little bit like maybe he's not the brand that we thought he was, um, in, in at least in Netflix's context.
0: Yeah, I mean, they have a lot of ways they can lure you in with, uh, you know, they, like Darren Chris, I think, has a fan base. Patty Lapone obviously has a fan base. And I, I think, you know, especially for people listening to this podcast, if you have some affinity for classic Hollywood and are willing to take all of the stories it presents with a grain of salt, there is kind of this nice escapism to it where everyone has beautiful costumes and, you know, all the women have this great red lipstick and you're seeing the commissary. And um, in the first two episodes, at least, um, there's a little bit of overlap with some real people. Like you get a Rock Hudson appearance. Uh, there's Anna Mae Wong, who is... One one of the very few Asian actresses of the classic era. You know, you can kind of spot the cameos and enjoy knowing a little bit about this time period and then kind of escaping into the fantasy version of it. Um, I've been—I watched the two episodes. I've been looking forward to seeing more.
5: Yeah, and, you know, um, some other names pop up. Rye Briner plays Patty LaPone's husband, and then Amira Sorvino is in it briefly as um, a kind of more established uh, studio actress. You know, so it, it has this big... Paget Brewster plays, I want to say... Tallulah Bankhead mm. yeah I think she's Tallulah Bankhead Maud Apatow is in it Maud Apatow by the way whose father's new movie just got put to VOD which I think is pretty interesting but that's another another topic oh
0: yeah yeah no the Judd Apatow's movie King of Staten Island is go- was going to be a summer release and is going straight to VOD um, which we imagine a lot of movies might follow suit uh,
5: but not it was not happening in the 1950s days of Hollywood <laughs>
0: Uh, Well, people can, by the time this comes out, I assume your review will be um, on the site, Richard.
5: Well, if not, Hillary will have some words for me, so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, before we uh, go over into our rewatch, Joanna, let's hear from you and Anthony talking uh, about Star Wars. I believe that's a franchise that people are familiar with, right?
4: Yes, we thought we would on the remarkable occasion of, I don't know, what, five months since it came out? I don't know, Anthony and I thought we would revisit The Rise of Skywalker outside of the storm of, like, conflicting opinions uh, when it premiered in December and just sort of look at what's going on with Star Wars and Lucasfilm right now uh, as May the 4th approacheth.
0: Well, it's also on its way to Disney plus on May the 4th. So if you are someone who didn't see it in theaters, definitely not me. I absolutely saw it, know everything about it. Um, Maybe you have a chance to finally catch up.
3: And I just want to say to brag on behalf of our team that it's crazy. We have the two biggest, best Star Wars experts in the galaxy here at Vanity Fair, so it's very it's a great oh, privilege yeah. to hear you guys talk.
4: <laughs> I will give that title to Anthony. I'm not sure I get to claim it, but um
3: Thank Together. You. you claim it together.
4: A di- a forced dyad, if you will. Yeah. You get you can get that reference, Katie, when you watch Rise of Skywalker. Okay. <laughs> Anthony Breskin, hello.
2: Joanna How are Robinson. You? How are you?
4: I'm okay. I'm as well as can be. Um, I was just thinking yesterday when I was, uh, you know, warily at the grocery store that my N95 mask made me sound like Darth Vader. So here we are to talk about Star Wars in these strange times.
2: Everybody Um, everybody wears masks and helmets (laughs) in the galaxy. And like, yeah, I went like a Zori a Zori Bliss helmet where you
0: just Ooh. pop up the
2: visor and your my my long curly hair will flow out.
4: <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to see it. All right, so you know we, this is the week before May the 4th, which is a traditional Star Wars holiday. Um, and Anthony and I wanted to just get together and talk about The Rise of Skywalker and also maybe just Lucasfilm in general and what's going on. We only have a little bit of time and that's a lot to cover, but um, I wanted to start with Anthony, um, maybe highlighting any coverage you have coming up on May the 4th that people can be on the lookout for on the website?
2: Yeah, you know, I have a story that we were going to run a, a little earlier, but it was it was supposed to come out around the time that the uh, quarantine shutdown happened. And uh, we ended up holding it, well, partly because we just we were all so busy with, uh, you know, covering that sort of breaking news. Um, but I thought, you know, it would be a good time to save it and put it out uh, at May the 4th. So it's about one of the characters that I think uh, is sort of universally liked in The Rise of Skywalker, and that's Babu Frick, the little yes. repair guy, <laughs> the little alien critter that fixes uh, C-3PO so that he can read Sith language. So we're going to talk to the, uh, the puppeteer behind that about the origin and the creation and the different directions that Babu Frick almost took, and uh, hopefully people will like it.
4: And I also have something coming up on a universally beloved Star Wars cuddly creature. Uh, We've got a little Baby Yoda feature coming up with a a fun interview with John Favreau and Dave Filoni, sort of about some of the obstacles and joys of creating uh, Baby Yoda. So that will be up on our website this week uh, in anticipation of May the 4th.
2: It'll be online, but also it'll be in the magazine. I can't wait to read this. You haven't told me anything about it. Can you can you give me a little a little something, a little uh, a little treat? <laughs>
4: Uh, we talked about George Lucas a good, a good deal, which uh-huh. was really which was fun to talk about, like, George's thoughts on Baby Yoda and, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's in the magazine. The expanded uh, version of it will be online, so you'll get ev- even more info uh, from there. And, uh, you know, that's how we, we are. I guess we're celebrating May the 4th with some cuddly things. Uh, Anthony, how is Disney Plus celebrating uh, May the 4th? What, what can folks find uh, there? Well,
2: they're doing the whole rundown, right? The whole list of movies?
4: They've got – I know The Rise of Skywalker is going to be there. I think they're still waiting on Solo to be, like, unshackled oh, that's from – Oh, uh,
2: that's still on, like, Netflix or something?
4: Yeah, they'll get that, in, I think, in July. Um, and then they're also doing this Mandalorian behind-the-scenes show, mm-hmm. which is kind of exciting. Um, that There, I, I imagine you'll get even more info on Baby Yoda and, like, all this other I stuff. Doubt,
2: I doubt it. I doubt they'll get more <laughs> than you got.
4: But, you know, uh, for people who are interested in – I think this will be a really cool series for people who are interested in some of the groundbreaking technological uh, leaps forward uh, the Mandalorian took in terms of, like, the really cool uh, digital backgrounding that they used and a lot of the puppetry and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think there's going to be a lot for people to really enjoy there. This uh, segment is not brought to you by Disney, I promise.
2: (laughs) No, but can can I mention something that I have that – that just came out, that uh, uh, it's not forthcoming, it's already online. And is uh, it
4: about a beautiful orange skinned warrior person?
2: That's right, Ahsoka Tano. I think yes, oral history on her, which ended up going very long. But I, I talked to Dave Filoni and Ashley Eckstein and E.K. Johnston, who wrote the novel about Ahsoka, and uh, the wonderful journalist uh, Amy Rochelle, who, who does the 365 Star Wars thing every day, she writes. A piece about a woman from Star Wars, like either a real That's woman so from cool. our world who's like a creator in some way uh, or a female character from from uh, from like the, from the canon. So, uh, you know, I did a deep dive into Ahsoka and I just had a lot of fun with it. I think she's a really important character to a lot of people, to me and uh, to all of the Clone Wars and Rebels fans out there. And we may end up seeing more of her in the future.
4: Right. So, uh, she is, you know, she's, she's from the animated series. She was, is it, uh, accurate to say she was Anakin's like Padawan, right? Like, yes. something, if you've never seen the animated Star Wars series, something really fun that happens in, um, the Clone Wars is you see Anakin sort of before the turn and you kind of see why he was, you know, uh, such a boy genius and stuff like that. And you like him actually, um, yeah, he's... in that. Yeah,
2: he's a good guy. He's like, you know, he's like a big brother to her.
4: Yeah. And so she's very important uh, in in that story. And she's a huge favorite for people who love uh, the animated series and uh, both of them. And uh, yeah, the the reportedly, she will be played by Rosario Dawson in um, the Mandalorian season two, right?
2: that's what we hear we'll see
4: reportedly reportedly okay so that's you know that's all the star wars news that's fit to print from us you know there's there's some other fun stuff going on in terms of announcements but we just wanted to take a quick look back at rise of skywalker and this was inspired by just a phone conversation that anthony and i were having a little while ago he's like should this be a podcast (laughs) um
2: (laughs) joanna and i have these conversations (laughs) where it's like we check in on some piece of journalism we're doing or, or tangentially related. And and then we end up doing a podcast that nobody <laughs> gives but us. <laughs>
4: but, but we wanted to sort of see how we were feeling, you know, in anticipation of, of Rise of Skywalker hitting Disney+. Plus. So I imagine a bunch of people are either going to be revisiting it or watching it for the first time. Uh, we just sort of wanted to check in. It was so, I don't know if controversial is the word I want to use, hotly debated. device divisive, right. contentious uh, when it dropped uh, in December. So we wanted to, like, cool our jets and see, like, a couple months later. I watched it two nights ago. I rewatched it. Um, see how we're feeling now. So, Anthony, where's where are you right now with Rise of Skywalker?
2: Well, it's funny because when we were talking, when you and I, we sat near each other. You were, like, right behind my wife and I. And, uh, and when we walked out, like, I really, like, was moved by the movie and, and felt good about it. And I think initially – right away you did you you had you had bad vibes about it right i did yeah and i feel like over time my enthusiasm for it has diminished like i just see i think at in the moment i appreciated the things that i still think are very good about the movie and still exciting and cool you know like the kylo han solo scene i i like the I like the resolution to the Rey and Kylo relationship. I don't think that they needed to end up together, but I understand that there are a lot of people out there very passionately angry that they do. But the flaws in the movie began to pick at me, you know? And so I think I moved a little, my needle moved a little closer to uh, to the dislike area. And I don't know, where are you right now?
4: Yeah, I think we did a good job of talking to each other respectfully and finding some middle ground because I think my needle moved a little further. I mean, I think – I mean, another remembrance I have of that premiere is, you know, us in – the like party tent afterwards and a bunch of uh, our friends who are big Star Wars fans were just going oh, going through the things that they didn't like and getting sort of amped up about the things that they didn't like, which is a really understandable reaction, I think, um, when you have like a lot of hope and expectation build up for something and definitely something that I've been... I don't know, guilty of, but, like, something I've done in the past. Mm-hmm. But, like, you and I were sort of off to the side just sort of talking about how, how we felt and I think, trying to understand each other. And uh, as a result, I was able to like, sort of lock onto the things that did work for me and that I did like. And over time, like, I've tried, the other thing, the frustration around these other things have fallen away. I mean, I think my, and I and I've really grown to appreciate the things that do work. I still think it's a very messy movie. Yeah. And I am still very frustrated because it like there's so much, potential. there's just like a really good movie struggling to get out from the mess of some of the screenwriting choices uh, of this film. And so I think that more than anything uh, still remains frustrating.
2: I think when we had our our little private conversation uh, a week or so ago, did we agree that like, this is one of those cases where I actually would want to see like a new version of like a special edition where like you know george lucas went back and like changed the things he didn't like like actually would be fine with like wait let's let's do a do over here like let's tighten up some of this let's reconfigure some of it i don't know if that's ever going to happen but i would have been down for it
4: yeah like uh, get rid of all the fake deaths yeah and just go from there um what what, yeah. was,
2: what was finn <laughs> trying to say you know why like, right like that's the kind of thing that You know, as time went on, I just got more and more bothered by, uh, and I think partly was because they kept reminding us of things that were not explained. Like, there'd be the novelization uh, that Ray Carson wrote that comes out, and it's like, oh, this explains how Palpatine is a clone. It's like, could we not have had a couple of lines of dialogue just to (laughs) explain? What was happening there? Can we, uh, you know, can we
4: run through the things that we have learned? I don't know what you recall, but like the things that we have learned since the movie came out from like supplemental material, the novelization, the visual dictionary. Um, do you have the, that list in your head? <laughs> I have some of it. Like just some of the yeah. things
2: that, that popped out at me like, well, that, that it wasn't actually Palpatine, that it was a clone of Palpatine, but it, it was almost like a horcrux to use a – another universe's term where his spirit inhabited this sort of withered body that the that all of those black cloaked figures on exegol were like sort of a weird cult society that had built this fleet of ships and i i just think uh, let uh, that's, it's called exposition you know <laughs> like <Yeah. that's,
3: laughs>
2: you right it's it's one thing to say like we're just going to offhandedly mention that I fought with your father in the clone wars in the original star wars and that adds a little bit of texture right it doesn't need a ton of explanation of course we got that like you know seven seasons of explanation 40 years later but um in the moment the movie needs a little context and i was willing to roll with some of it and look but looking back it's like uh oh, okay that's the kind of thing i i think it just should. we needed a, we deserved an explanation
4: of. You know, and of course we know that one of the ways in which their hands were tied was in trying to honor uh, Carrie Fisher and uh, General Leia in the film. But I think that did really get in their way. Um, like, w- watching it this time, this this week, I was almost like, I, I really almost would have rathered, I mean, I, I, I hope this doesn't sound unkind. I don't mean it this way. I think it would have been better if they had... Written a reason why she wasn't in the film at all rather than jump through the hoops that they jumped through uh, to include her in this way. Um, and that would have been tremendously sad. but I for I think there was a way to honor her mm-hmm. in that way uh, to show the character's reaction to her absence um, rather than what they did do, which in the end, I felt wound up feeling really distracting to me.
2: Absolutely. I thought they did the best they could with the footage they had of her. And and I like the idea of her reaching out to Kylo and projecting this image of his father and and a, as a way of breaking through to him, right? But then, you know, when you talk to Chris Terrio, the screenwriter, he says that's not exactly what happened, that it's more just this memory that appears to Kylo. And I'm like, okay, none of this... <laughs> you know, I'm trying here to make the connection. Like, okay, the idea that she would be projecting a manifestation of a person the way Luke projected his own manifestation in uh, The Last Jedi works for me, right? And that she would use this to connect with her son who murdered this man that we all know and love from the previous movies. Like, that, to me, that works. And then she f- fades away just as as Luke did. Okay. But then they spend a lot of time in this sort of extracurricular area outside of, uh, outside of the movie saying, well, no, that's not exactly what happens or – uh, okay then then i then i guess i don't understand anything <laughs> you know I, I that became very frustrating but if we if we were just not going to recreate leia in any way i think the movie should have started with a very small refugee style funeral for her yeah, not a state funeral but like we're on the run a battle a battle funeral you know where they have uh, when you have to bury your comrade because they died you know, in conflict and, and, and we've got to move on. So you've got this little scrappy resistance set up and where I would have set it is in that temple that they end the first movie at. So you've got like, you know, the giant banners and the huge, you know, army there to see Luke and Han and not Chewie get his medal. Like, like I imagine just they're there and they have a small urn and they're, and they're saying goodbye to the, the ones who knew her are there to say goodbye. And that's where the last movie ends begins is where the first one ended
4: oh i love that wouldn't
2: that have been like pr- beautiful and, and and sort of fan servicey in a way that actually has meaning so I, that's where i would have started it, is that we've lost you start on a downbeat note like we've lost right. the last person who knew how to fight these wars
4: right
2: and then and now we've got to move on without her which is what happens when you lose somebody you love Right. gotta move on without them
4: and I think that conflict for Ray would be really important, this sort of like, I've, I don't have my teachers, mm-hmm. I have to teach myself sort of thing. You know what I mean? Like, I think that would have been really strong for her and for, um, you know, Finn and Poe um, and everyone. I think that would have been a really strong story to tell for them. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I know, I know in their heart of hearts, they were trying to honor her the best way they believed they could. And, you know, I believe that. And I just think that it didn't wind up for me landing the way that I think they wanted. And in the end, actually distracted from, you know, the story that they were trying to tell. So, yeah. Yeah. So the other thing I will say is that watching at home while I was admittedly able to like do some slight multitasking really helps those parts that don't work like fade away. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, um, the part narratively that bothers me the most is the chewy fake out death that still really bothers me and feels just ext-
2: unnecessary, ext-
4: extremely cheap. But um, I think you and I talked about I really do like that tug of war that Ray and um, Kylo play with the transporter right before it. Right.
2: Right. That's cool. So, so, Fighting right, like so arm was, <laughs> wrestling with the four. Yeah.
4: So I was watching that. That was great, and then when it explodes and all the chewy stuffs happening, I just sort of like turn my attention away because I was like, "This is gonna make me mad," so I'm just not gonna pay attention to it, and then I'll just tune back in when I am like interested in the story again. And in that, and watching it that way, I like cried during the Han and Kylo scene and um, all the end of it. Always the sky battle is, I still have some questions, but but on the ground, all the stuff in Exegol really works for me, uh, and so you know i was just able to zo- to tune in uh, zero in on the things that worked and that was just a much more enjoyable way to watch this film so you know if if you if you watch it in the theaters and you're frustrated by it and you're and you're like i'll never watch that at home it might be worth it to watch it and just sort of like focus on the things you like and ignore the things you don't you know that's just, that's one way to watch a movie i suppose you it's know it's funny
2: i don't know what it is with me like you, you talked about the reaction immediately after the movie. I'm, I get swept up in the films, and 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 I, I don't know if it's just like like a, a brights looking on the bright side or something, but, but I'll be moved by the parts that work for me, and then later I reconsider it based on you know if I thinking about it too much, like well you know how could she not know Chewie was in that transport if she could later sense him aboard a star destroyer which was even farther away and more populated like. Little like logic flaws like that begin to to eat at me, but they they don't stick in the moment. you know what I mean? It's kind of like not for me not noticing continuity errors because you're just swept up in the emotion of a story. Mm-hmm. but uh, there's a lot you're right. there's a lot this is there's a lot of jankiness going on in this movie,
4: <laughs> and I know you know I know that they were pressed this is this is the thing though, like this is just the thing that I wish more movies would do a couple things. I know that there's a lot of complication involved around setting a release date for a film, but I I would love to see more studios be more willing to push back a release date if they just don't have the film, you know, when it comes time. So that's one thing. And and once again, I know that there's a lot of complications involved in that, but like a, some of it almost seems just like pride, like it feels like bad press. If you move a release date, uh, you, you know, Troubled
2: production. Yeah, yeah,
4: exactly. But I would rather like a, a rumors of a troubled production and a great film than, you know, the reverse. The other is like, one of these things, you know, people, people are like, what is the secret to Marvel's success? One of the things that, they do that I just think is so smart is that they build like a huge sort of like reshoot post-production tinkering time into their production schedule from the start. And I'm sure like Lucasfilm has, you know, a certain degree of that, but like for Marvel, it seems like reshoots are never, ever like, Oh crap, we fucked up. It's just like, this is the refining process. This is what we do to refine the film. And I think I don't know that other studios any other studio quite approaches it in that same way. Is that, is that your perception at all?
2: Yeah. I think there's so much weight on these movies that goes beyond just the film itself. There's all the merchandise and the fact that they have a giant, two giant theme parks, which are now closed, but uh, that they launched that that were star Wars themed. And you've got all these tie-ins and merchandising deals in terms of just promotion, you know, Kylo ran right. on a bag of Doritos or whatever. I'm not saying that's great or that it's sometimes overdone. I I, I like to joke like. I mean, like, I think somewhere out there, there's like Star Wars embalming fluid for like the mortician who's a big fan of the galaxy far, far away. Like, there's just like Star Wars branded on almost every product that you can imagine, and I think that's what they have to meet. Like, that's often exerting too much pressure on the filmmaking process, which is like a different thing. It's not just about the ticket sales or the audience getting the movie. Then that movie has to be the standard bearer for all this other money making enterprise and and it's i think it's just it puts too much pressure on these films to get yeah. done by a certain quarter you know what i mean right
4: exactly exactly all right anthony well we will we will talk again soon and and thank you for this uh, star wars check-in
2: thank you joanna i'm david remnick host of the new yorker radio hour there's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect
5: cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your Titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: So for our ongoing Little Gold Men Essentials series, uh, we started kind of a new theme for the next few weeks where we're going to go, we're putting up on our poll on Twitter to uh, let our listeners pick what we're listening to. We're doing uh, acting categories. So first up was Best Actress. And we set up a poll of four films with Best Actress winning performances. And the winner by a pretty solid margin was Network. Um, That gets us into a new decade that we haven't done on uh, this rewatch series yet. We're in the the heart of the 70s. Um, Network, I think, is the movie that. when it gets written about now, it's always about how well it's held up and how prescient it was. And I don't know about you guys, but whenever I looked back at articles from like 2014 or 2008, where it's like, wow, network really predicted like how bad things were going to get. I kind of like laughed at how little we knew about how much uh, the news and spectacle were going to overlap with society. Um, And I tweeted this, like it feels like this is the first time I've watched it since Donald Trump was president. And that was really hard to shake with realizing how in, in some ways network feels a little dated because of its attitude toward television um, that we can get into, but also, like, my God, Paddy um the very famous screenwriter of this, he really saw it coming, right?
5: Oh, he was a prophet. I mean... <laughs>
0: the mad prophet you know, of the airwaves? <laughs> it's funny that
5: this happened because I recently was watching clips from the hospital, which was another one of his kind of social satire movies. Um, And there's just an excellent monologue by George, that George C. Scott delivers in that movie that had me thinking like, wow, he got there. They were talking about everything we're talking about now back then. And then you watch network and it's like, yeah, same deal. Like, like Chayefsky just really saw what was in front of him, but also saw what was coming. And granted he didn't predict the internet, but like no one did in the 1970s, but, uh, or maybe some people did, but, but yeah, it's, 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 it, it was, I was saying to my sister, last night uh when i was watching it that it's the kind of movie kind of like you said katie that seems dated now because it got so much right mm-hmm. you know it's, yeah. it's it's like oh this is all obvious and it's like great but it wasn't 44 years ago so uh yeah. it's pretty amazing when you think think of it in those terms
0: yeah the thing that i think patty Chiesky might have seen coming but like didn't want to like exaggerate too much and put into his screenplay is the idea of a Howard Beale character becoming president. Like, that does feel like some obvious line you can draw from the end of Network. But I think if it had happened at the time, everyone would have been like, no, come on, that's never going to happen. That's crazy. And that's the thing that I just couldn't shake watching it is that you've got someone who's propped up by these kind of venal TV producers who will get good ratings um, by saying, all kinds of crazy shit on the air, um, and then just grows and grows in power. And in the case of reality, actually winds up becoming president. It's so I don't. It, it dominated my entire rewatch of it.
4: I mean, it's uh, useful to think about the '70s and and the context. I think of like the period we're going through now. In the '70s, is these like twin what is it that jimmy carter said crisis of confidence um eras in in the u.s where we're just like we don't know how to handle this and 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 we have such a distrust in our leadership and um and that goes for both parties you know what i mean um distrust in institutions and stuff like that which is you know often really associated with the 70s and so thinking about watching this in the context of what was going on you know with watergate with uh you know et cetera. Et cetera um I, I don't know that they would have been that all that surprised by a, a crook in the office, you know, sort of thing in the White House. Um, what's funny, my story of watching Network is I watched it for the first time, I think, less than a year ago. You know, I, I don't know why I was inspired to watch it, but I, I like, finally watched it. I only knew, like the mad as hell. And as uh, Mike texted to us, it's a misquoted line. Well, it's misquoted throughout the rest of the film. Um, but um, as mad as hell is what Peter Finch said. I knew that speech. I knew Fate Dunaway was in it and I knew it was about TV, but I did not know it was like a satire or whatever word we want to imply to it. And so I was just watching it and it gets increasingly bonkers. And I was like, oh, I thought this was just a, a straight across the board. Story. I did not know that we were expecting broadcast news. Yeah, I was. I I thought I thought it was like broadcast news, and I was like,
5: "What?" It's really funny you say that because the first time I saw Network, I, I was you know maybe. 11 or 12 and i had just really gotten into i had like the leonard malton film guide and i was like into like oscar past and i found out that there were these two movies about like tv that had been oscar movies broadcast news on network and so i like i made my dad bring them home from his college library like around the same time and i was just so like had such whiplash because they're so different movies um you know about the same thing ultimately but yeah that's really it's 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 a funny thing what's
3: interesting in terms of these movies being prophetic is is uh, Holly Hunter basically plays Susan Zarinsky in Broadcast News, who was now the president of CBS News. So they both saw d- interesting futures. But um, but yeah, it, it is like the setup of network uh, as a satire is basically it seems that, you know, Patty Shayevsky, everybody involved, looked at this situation and said, OK, wait a minute. Television is a sort of, you know, visual Marshall McLuhan um, medium for entertaining people and seducing them with images right and and it's owned the whole thing is owned by corporations with a profit motive and we rely on this to effectively you know inform people like like that doesn't seem like a a a really you know stable system that doesn't seem like a great idea and let's imagine like how what would be like if every part of that just went horribly wrong and it really is wild how you know all of that did go horribly wrong, and 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 it's it it is a tr- testament to the kind of correctness of the. Um, uh diagnosis right like they really were right about what the forces are the pressures are on both television as an entertainment medium fundamentally and corporations as things that need to make money and like ultimately that trumps everything else uh and i just used that word but anyway so (laughs) it's fascinating And, and oddly the thing that i ended up because that is almost so blindingly obvious now um you're watching it enjoying the sort of rhymes with what's happening now But I ended up being almost more intrigued by the relationship um, between William Holden, our old friend from Sunset Boulevard, and Faye Dunaway. First of all, funny to watch it right after uh, Sunset Boulevard and see the ages flipped. And now William Holden is the older guy with a sort of not entirely on the level younger lover. And how this was the age of everybody suddenly having some kind of familiarity with Uh, sort of Freudian psychoanalysis and all of the sort of horrible ways, I don't know about horrible, but all the kind of complicated and sometimes destructive and maybe clumsy ways that people were experimenting with relationships at that time, you know? I mean, the scene where he just says to his wife, (laughs) he just goes to his wife and he just lays it all out. He's like, I'm going to go do this now. You can only imagine that happening in the 70s at a time when psychoanalysis had kind of um, Given everybody the false idea that just by identifying all their feelings and you know saying them out loud, everything would be fine. So it really is a it, it's a time capsule of the '70s in a lot of ways, and and a lot of it's really relevant. It's interesting to see which parts are very similar to now and which parts feel kind of foreign now.
0: I wanted to talk about the Faye Dunaway part of it because she, you know, is her best actress winning performance. That's the reason that um, we're talking about it in theory because it's a. The character of, like, the work-driven woman who will, like, do anything to get the ratings, um, it's kind of, it's become a cliche in some ways. I mean, you do see, like, the Holly Hunter character in Broadcast News, where she's so married to her work. Um, She has this one moment where she says to him, like, I really, I'm an apt at everything except my work. Um, But I don't think this character is a cliche because she's such a villain, um, which is really fascinating to watch. And you see um, behind-the-scenes stories. Actually, David Scoff of the New York Times wrote a book about the making of Network uh, about five years ago called Mad as Hell that uh, I read then. Hilary recommend reading um if you want more of these background stories but basically sydney lamette told faye dunaway like do not try to give this character sympathetic moments don't try to find the human in her i will cut all of it out um so she really (laughs) gets played as this like vicious shell of a person you know william holden tells her later that she's television incarnate and it makes for like not necessarily a relatable character or a human one but she's fascinating and it does it I do think it helps the character hold up even as our attitudes toward women in the workplace like this has changed a lot since then
3: she definitely is a symbol right uh, when he says that you're like oh okay that's what we're watching Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean,
4: I was like, you didn't have to say that. Like, yeah. I was like, the, I don't know. Whenever someone like underlines the metaphor, I'm like, okay, well, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I like a lot of the stuff that, that goes on with their relationship and and her, you know, villainy and and work addiction. The whole like they go away for the weekend and all she can talk about are ratings and work is like really relatable to me, but um. <laughs> the, uh, The uh, the scene where he leaves, I don't know, it's it's hard for me to watch him like walk out with like he feels some kind of moral high ground. I'm like, do you get a moral high ground given everything that you've done in this film? I don't know that that sort of hit a weird note for me. But she's incredibly good in this role, and, and he's great, too. Um, I really I really love him.
3: Uh, well, to your point, Joanna, in that opening scene where he lays off Howard Beale and then they go get drunk, and they start joking about, you know, doing this kind of crazy spectacle stuff, and he's sitting there at the bar, wasted, fantasizing about it. So he, he had all this in him. Um, yeah. He just didn't have the guts to do it. And that's actually why he's so attracted to her. Again, they they actually, the characters do sort of function more effectively as symbols than as humans in, in some ways, <laughs> right. I would say. Right,
1: right.
5: Yeah, it's interesting that this movie, um, I was reminded, you know, for as satirical and kind of over the top as it is, was inspired by a real life thing, which was Christine Chubbick, um, a news reporter in Florida, killing herself on live television in 1973, I think. A tape that apparently exists somewhere, but no one's seen for 40 something years, but there have been two movies recently made about it, uh, one sort of a documentary, one um, a kind of more biopic movie, if you want to call it that. So Chayefsky was reacting to a kind of real thing and then taking it to, you know, a kind of crazier extreme, um, obviously. Um, but, you know, for a movie that is as dark as that and has that kind of source material, I think there is so much that's uh, funny about the movie that I kind of forgot every time he would fall down after one of his speeches and kind of faint and then the camera would just be like holding on his just like crumpled body while the audience applauded Mm -hmm. I think it was like the funniest thing I've seen in so long
0: yeah and it's this terrible it's like this very cynical humor to it but it's uh, it strikes you and the same with um, Ned Beatty when he shows up uh, to give the you have meddled with the primal forces of nature Mr. Beale speech like it's terrifying and like thundering but also really funny
5: There's a line in that speech that I took a note of when when Ned Beatty says the world is a college of corporations. I was like, all right, like the Twitter generation is just now kind of awakening to that now. And it was being said, (laughs) you know, 44 years ago.
3: Well, one of my theories, have I discussed this before, is that we're living through the millennial 70s now. Mm. The last decade was the was the optimistic millennial 60s. And now we're living with the horrific crash of expectations being dashed and destroyed um, so that's fun.
4: Ooh, a second me generation. <laughs> What's coming next is
3: the '80s, and then we can all get really, uh, you know, forget about everything except making money.
4: Ooh, neon, bring it back. Um, yeah. Well, should we talk about the two extremely brief performances that were nominated for Oscars and won an Oscar uh, in this film?
0: Yeah, I was just looking at the um, the lineup of the Best Supporting Actress nominees this year because Beatrice Strait is very good in the one scene she has in her movie where she knows she starts as, like, the sad, spurned wife but kind of turns, like, I mean, the script turns the scene into something more interesting and she plays it really well. But it made me wonder if there was just this like wave of support for the movie that like put her over the top kind of the way that like Judy Dench won for Shakespeare and Love for another very short performance. Um, you know, she was nominated against Jane Alexander who is in All the Presidents men, Jodie Foster and Taxi Driver. And you know, she was a child then you can imagine how that's a tough competition. Um Lee Grant in Voyage of the Damned, which is a movie I don't know much about. And, and then Piper Laurie and Carrie, which is a wild performance. Um I don't know, did you guys feel like it stood out so much in the one scene that like it's obvious why she won the Oscar? I was doing some research on it
4: and um the prevailing theory is that the other performers kind of split the vote that mm. it was a there was a it was a no consensus year and so she just like pulled through i think probably on, on a wave of positivity for the film but yeah i mean she is incredibly good. she has like too fair she has two scenes but the first one is <laughs> just like her wandering around the house but like her big scene is like is tremendous and uh, you know I'm always on the lookout for that thing that Mike points out that like Oscar real moment clip and that's her entire scene is an Oscar reel. um and so is Ned Beatty so I kind of get it but uh and it's kind of cool like I don't know it's kind of nice when a supporting role a supporting nomination is like truly 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 supporting um yeah. rather than category fraud of of a
0: lead Performance, like so. Timothy Hutton and Ordinary People last week.
5: Or Laura Dern and Mary's Story, you know, winning for a very supporting role. Um, yeah. You know, I think the other thing about Be It's Just Straight is that, you know, she was a kind of theater icon, um, had won a Tony before this, like 20 something years before she won her Oscar. She was in the actor's studio with like Marlon Brando and various people. So, I kind of almost view it as like a Mark Rylancey kind of win, Mm. like um, cool theater person who everyone like actors like deeply respect and then finally have a chance to be like welcome them into the movie club. Um, That's kind of I mean, obviously, the narratives are different. Straight was older than Rylance was, whatever. But so maybe it was kind of more career Oscar for straight. But um, it's just yeah, it's really cool. Like you said, Joanna, that someone won an Oscar for five minutes of screen time.
4: And then, you know, Ned Beatty didn't win. Jason Robards won for All the President's Men. But uh, that scene... Speaking of uh, Mike Mike Hogan watching Better Call Saul, one of my favorite moments of season one of Better Call Saul is like he comes in and does lines from the Ned Beatty scene, uh, like "You will atone," and then he just like stops and he's like, "It's from a movie." Network Ned Beatty, anyway. It's so good. <laughs> Bob, go watch Bob Odenkirk doing Ned Beatty in Network. It's fantastic. So, um, yeah, that and just the composition of that scene, like with all the lights in the boardroom and how far away he is. It's, I think it's like. It's a real jewel in in this great film, you know.
5: It's when the movie almost becomes Doctor Strangelove, you know. Yeah. It, it's, I think it's. It's at almost the height of its satire, minus maybe the scene where they decide to kill him. But yeah, it's. 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 It's so good, and like I, you know, i watching a scene like that. I found myself wondering, do we have Aaron Sorkin without this movie?
0: Oh no. I mean, it's. Right. I, it was something I was reading this morning. He like referenced Patty Chayefsky in his Oscar acceptance speech for The Social Network. Um, I think Aaron yeah. Sorkin would probably be the first to tell you, um, that he was so inspired by this just for the like, the desire to look everything square in the eye in society and find a way to take it down. And you can debate whether Aaron Sorkin is as like funny and successful. I think in his best work, he probably is.
5: And write long monologues. People don't mm-hmm. write enough monologues anymore. That's probably <laughs> like, why I like Sorkin so much. Like, yeah. Just let him talk. It's so exciting <laughs> to just see an actor plant their feet in a movie and just talk for, you know, five minutes or whatever it is.
0: Yeah. Isn't it wild that Robert Duvall is in this in like the fifth or sixth most interesting role in the whole thing? Like, he's very good in it, but like his character is like kind of like there as part of the plot. He doesn't really get like a huge crazy moment the way that everybody else does at all.
3: You know what else we just watched um, is Lonesome Dove. Have you guys ever seen that? The old yes. miniseries. Yes. And watching yes. Robert Duvall in that, and then watch, watching Robert Duvall in this is when I truly became like finally f- fully aware of just how versatile he is as an actor. I mean, it's incredible. He's he's great in this, but he's you know his job is to be a jerk, like total asshole that you hate, and he's yeah wonderful.
4: I love that Lonesome Dove made up some of your quarantine watch. Uh,
3: yeah, that, this, is, this is really charming. thanks to my wife. She was like, "You have to watch this. It was good." Eight hours. It's all about
0: the fantasy of going outside.
3: Yeah, <laughs> eight hours um, of horses.
4: The other, I mean, this is such an interesting bag of uh, I don't know Oscar trivia. I don't, I don't like to say that right before I'm about to say this, but um, the fact that Peter Finch was awarded the Oscar posthumously, and I think was the first person to have that happen, and, and mm-hmm. the only until Heath Ledger. And so, you know, knowing that he sadly passed away of a heart attack, like, fairly shortly after watching this movie. I think on the press
0: tour for this movie.
4: Oh, my God. It makes watching his, like, sort of apoplectic performance, like, that much more dangerous feeling. You know what I mean? You're like, this guy on the verge of, like, Mm -hmm. yeah. uh,
0: And a lot of the ways that he leisures the Joker does the same thing, where, you know, you think about how much that role consumed him, too. Yeah.
4: I just
5: wanted to say quick about the Robert Duvall, all. I, I like the um, the running joke that he uh, is always showing up in a tuxedo because he's always <laughs> been at some sort of gala or event, you know? That feels like it's something just, 30 a, Rock directly Psychic.
0: stole for Jack Donaghy. Um, like showing yeah, and up.
5: especially because he has these like ruffly um, the Ruffle shirt cuffs. cuffs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's an amazing look.
4: Anyway. Should we talk a little bit more about Faye Dunaway, though, at all? Because this is a best actress prompt.
0: Yeah, I mean, I did enjoy, as I um, was telling you guys, like, if you start looking at stories about um, her on the set, like, I think uh, she and William Holden did not get along especially well. And there are a lot of stories of her not having great behavior on sets in this period. And I don't want to go too far in, like, talking about a woman being difficult because we all know how that can be used as a... um, a, reason to write them off um but it does seem like she was a maybe a challenging person to work with and hey that could have also contributed to the convincingness of this character being so like ruthless and driven
5: yeah i mean i think you know whatever did or did not you know happen on set you know and did mommy dearest five you know five years later actually ruin her career or was it something else um you just have to appreciate what a crazy run that dunaway had uh, in the mid 70s, you know, from Towering Inferno in 1974, then Days of the Condor Network, Voyage of the Damned, which is another Oscar nominated movie in 76, then 78 Eyes of Laura Mars. Like that's a that's a pretty impressive run. Um, kind of I don't know who would be comparable to that, like a very kind of different tone to Amy Adams, maybe or somebody. But like, yeah, regardless of her behind the scenes, you know, she was certainly like the zeitgeisty person of that era. Um, and it's exciting to watch her at the kind of peak of her um, abilities in this. Oh, also, I thought it was interesting. I don't know that we'd get this now, but that the willowy young, you know, hot news producer is seen scarfing down a plate of huge plate of pasta and a gigantic sandwich in another scene. (laughs) I feel like that's not accidental.
0: (laughs) Her clothes are really something special in this, I guess because like the fashion, you know, has come back around to a lot of what she wears in this. And I mean, she wears clothes incredibly beautifully.
4: Yeah. And you know, the last thing I want to say about this year of Oscar, right, is that this is also the, the Rocky year. Right. So the reason Network doesn't have a best director or best picture win is because, you know, those those prizes belong to Rocky. And then I, I feel like I remember when Sylvester Stallone was on the campaign trail for uh, Creed. That you know, there was this narrative of like he was robbed from Rocky when Peter Finch won, and all that sort of stuff. I, I feel like I remember that being like what the narrative became around that win. Um, yes. and then of course, he lost to Mike Rylance. So, um, anyway, uh, you,
0: you, I mean, just looking at this lineup of like Rocky beating all the president's men and network and taxi driver, which are three just I think seminal movies about the the cynicism and the post Watergate, uh, kind of rot of America, and Rocky being this like triumphant thing over it. You, can, I mean, you imagine Green Book winning Best Picture a couple years after Trump's election. Like you see the impulse there where it's like, here is something we can feel good about and rally behind. And like these other movies, like Rocky's I mean, Rocky's also a classic, but um, it's fascinating watching the Academy kind of go for something similar decades apart.
3: You can see the 80s being born. Right
0: there. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, and this is the the year after Jaws and the year, like, a couple months before Star Wars opens is when this Oscars happens. Like, it's all coming around them. But Patty Chayefsky's still there beating <laughs> beating his chest and trying to get people to take it seriously. I'm
5: just glad that Igmar Bergman, Lena Vertmuller, uh, and Sylvester Stallone were all nominated for Oscars in one year. Granted, not all <laughs> the same category. But... <laughs> It's just an interesting yeah. little snapshot of the mid-70s. I mean, <laughs> also that all the President's Men, Rocky Network and Taxi Driver, all came out in the same goddamn year know, and crazy. were all nominated it's for incredible. Oscars. I mean,
3: that's crazy. Did they do a group photo in those years? That oh, would my be God. Because that would be a hell of a, <laughs> hell of a shot.
0: When, uh, when the world reopens again, I'm going to go to the, uh, Osc- the Academy Museum when it opens and just make them give me all the years of the Oscar <laughs> group photos because that would make me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> little baby Jodie Foster. Yeah. <laughs>
5: So we're gonna go now to an interview I did with the actor Hong Sho. She is the star along with Brian Danickey and a young actor named Lucas J of the film Driveways um from Andrew On which is a really nice little movie about a mother and son who, following a tragedy, uh, befriend the grizzled older man next door, which is a familiar setup for a movie, I suppose, But um, on uh, and his performers really bring a, a unique edge to the, to the film, and Hangzhou is a big part of that. So I was excited to talk to her about that uh, and about Watchmen and just really about her sort of philosophy for her acting career. Well, I'm so pleased to be on Skype at the moment with uh, the star of the upcoming film Driveways, Hong Xiu. Um Hong, thank you for being with us. I understand this is your first uh, quarantine interview.
1: Yeah. I As of even just a week ago, I didn't think I'd be doing any press during this pandemic, but um, I guess they just quickly figured out um, how to do everything. And so I've just Gotten a flurry of emails uh, just in the last couple of days about uh, doing press, so I'm happy to be here. I thought that driveways would just kind of quietly go into the night, and I'm glad that you know I have this opportunity to to talk about it.
5: Well, yeah, it's an it's an interesting time for the industry. Obviously, a lot of things are shut down and a lot of big movies have had to delay their releases, which gives, you know, the silver lining, I guess, is that it gives a, a film like Driveways, which is, you know, a small, intimate um, kind of indie film, uh, a chance to maybe breathe a little bit and be shown to more people, I hope.
1: I hope so. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely because it's not a flashy movie, it's not uh, being distributed by one of the, the larger uh, indie companies, so it was going to have a, an uphill battle um, in any case, but, um, you know, I think with things being the way they are, maybe it'll have a, a little bit uh, more more eyeballs, more ears, um, just because people are at home and, and there's... Um, I mean, there's still plenty of things to, <laughs> to take away your attention or, or grabbing for your attention. But I think maybe with the mood that people are in a, a movie like Driveways uh, might might really speak to people.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm curious about how it spoke to you um, in terms of like when you first got wind of the project or read the script. Um, can you talk a little bit about the sort of origin of you being in the film?
1: Yeah, I got um, an email from Andrew Ahn, our director, uh, with a letter in the script. And my manager at the time <laughs> was trying to, to explain and, and sort of prep me like, oh, it's this guy. And I was like, oh, I know exactly who Andrew Ahn is. I had seen his first feature, Spa Night, at my local cinema. And I, I really loved it, and I just kept him in my head and I saw that he wasn't really getting enough you know, attention or press for that first feature, which was a shame because I, I thought it was so well done and just really special. So I was thinking like, oh, you know, I hope the sky gets to make another feature because I know how hard it is for indie filmmakers. Even if you're really talented, you're not really guaranteed that next opportunity. So I was really excited to get um, that email from, from Andrew. And I mean, honestly, I didn't, um, Really, even need to look at the script or the role to, to you know sit down and have coffee with him, uh, which we did, and uh, we talked for like three hours. And he's just so darling and, and like likable, and um, he's I don't know what it was, but I just felt like I wanted to make sure that this person you know, gets to have a really nice, long, beautiful career. And I just wanted to, to help him um, in any way that I could. So I, I, I just said, yes, I'll, I'll do this. I don't, I don't really care what the script or the story is. I mean, it, it was, it was um, a well-done script. I don't want to, you know, um, not give credit where it's due. But I, I, honestly, my, my, my major um, and sole reason for, for working on the project was Andrew.
5: When a movie or a TV project is super high concept, you know, um, I, I would imagine that's kind of easy for a director to describe to an actor what the film is going to look like or sound like. But with this, which is smaller, more gentle, more sort of on the you know feet on the ground in the human realm, um, what were some of the early conversations you had about the sort of aesthetics of the film or, or the feel of it? Because it's so closely observed that um, I'm curious if that's just something that is conjured on the day of shooting a particular scene, or if that's kind of a conscious decision that you had from the uh, outset to kind of calibrate the film that way?
1: Well, I think it had a a lot to do with the budget and it being so small and not really having a lot of resources. And, um, you know, when things are bare bones um, in terms of just uh, physically what's available to you, um, and the size of the crew that's available to you things just get really focused and really small and everybody who wants to be there really wants to be there it's not like you know we were getting paid so much money um, and that the craft service was so <laughs> wonderful it was it, it was really a, a labor of love for everybody involved and um, and the the spareness that works really well that you're talking about um, is really hard to do, and I think that has that's that's really Andrew Ahn's signature is that he has such a light touch, but there still is uh, a feeling of momentum and energy, um, and a strong voice um, within all of uh, the, the gentleness of of, every, of everything.
5: You've been able to work on some um, bigger projects like Downsizing or Watchmen, um, but also smaller, you know, in, more independent things. Obviously, I, I'm sure that both hold their own appeal. But uh, for you as an actor, do you tend to do? You think like, if you had, you know, your your pick of the litter in terms of what you could do, do you think you would gravitate toward the sort of smaller, more interior things? Um, do you have a taste in, in either way?
1: Um. No, I'm really open to anything as long as—it just has to not be boring, you know. It just just has to uh, be—there has to be some little seed of of, um, curiosity or or something that interests me. Um, In this case, it was working with Andrew. um, But, you know, I'm not necessarily, in terms of acting, looking to only— do really small, grounded, naturalistic things. You know, I would love um, to do something really big and bombastic as well. You know, I don't know what that would be, Um, you know. Because even, I I think with the way that, that movies are going, you really only find those bigger performances um, that are allowed in, in those tentpole movies which, which is kind of a shame because you know I love watching older movies where the performances are a little bit more theatrical and they're a little bit bigger and it just works really beautifully and we've kind of shied away from that now where the style of acting or the acting style that people appreciate now is a little bit um, uh, smaller in some ways and, and I don't think that Naturalistic necessarily means that it's better than than something that's more theatrical and bigger.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think there absolutely is room for both, <laughs> hopefully. Um, I would imagine that one of the acting, I don't know, I don't want to call it a challenge because that sounds pejorative, but like one of the interesting things about making Driveways is that you're working a lot with a young actor, uh, Cody, uh, Lucas Jay, who plays your son Cody in the film. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to work with um, someone that age and w- what kind of dynamic exists on set when you're trying to create this very credible mother-son bond?
1: Well, it's funny. It, it, I mean, not only was I working with a child, but I was also working with Ryan Dennehy, who was on the other end of the age spectrum. So they, in a, they were kind of, in terms of having to adjust for their needs, their individual needs, it was kind of similar where, um, because uh, for Lucas, it was his first movie. And he, he had done like, um, I think, episodic work um you know like Full House or something like that so he's he's worked before but he hasn't really done a feature film or or things that weren't quite so contained the way maybe uh you know a children's show might be or or a sitcom like like Full House um so you know there were (laughs) there were things like having to hit your mark but not really like understanding like oh this is the frame, and this is the speed of the that the dolly is is moving. So I have to adjust my move. So there are things like that that he just didn't know yet, you know. Like, and so we would do like a ton of takes of that, of just him trying to like walk up to a window and land on a certain mark. Um, so we would do like 14 takes of that, and, <laughs> and I would do like two takes of mine. And that was just how it was. It's like okay, I'm gonna do two takes, and then we're gonna do like you know 20 takes of whatever. Of this other thing but that's equally necessary and important to making the film so you know you just have to uh roll with it and be able to to do that without you know feeling like you know how i you know i i'm i'm being um put upon in some way it really was fun to get to work with with lucas and not that i was needed to explain anything to him i think he like caught on pretty quickly but um it's just nice to, to be able to work with people at different uh, points in their career. And, and you know, we, we talk about um, wanting to see progress and diversity and all of that. And I just think that it's really great that somebody at his age gets to work on um, material like driveways and, um, you know, and have that be the, uh, the foundation for his career, which I think will be long because he really enjoys acting.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of a, a nice reflection of the film's, one of the film's themes about sort of generational exchange you know, and, and kind of learning things from each other, you know, more experienced people and novices and, you know, uh, whether that's at acting or just at life. Um, so, yeah, I think that that makes that makes it makes sense that that was kind of the experience of working with a younger actor. But now I am also curious about the Dennehy of it all. Um, you know, we recently <laughs> lost him, which is, yeah. you know, a shame. But he was this uh, incredible, just lion of the American stage and obviously did a lot of great yes. film and television work. Um, what were your interactions with him, like, on set? I mean, was he this font of you know, adages about the craft of acting or, or how did it kind of play out?
1: Um, we did talk a little bit about, um, acting, but I started because I was, uh, shooting another film right before, uh, another indie. And so they started about a week before me and, um, it was Brian and Lucas working together for that first week. And then I came in and, um, <laughs> and he is just God bless him he he just he's such a strong presence um as a person as a human being he loves to tell stories and just crack jokes a lot of them were really terrible but he would just <laughs> keep cracking jokes anyway and he loved being on set and but the other part of side of it cuz i don't want to sugarcoat it is that he he's old or he was old and this was you know two summers ago that we shot driveways and it was really physically difficult for him to you know do the 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 movie but he really wanted to be there every day and that's just inspiring for somebody like me to see because I, you know, there are people my age and uh, who, you know, you get the sense that they don't really actually want to be there (laughs) doing their job. So it was just really wonderful to, and an honor to work with Brian Dennehy on one of his last roles, which I think is just uh, such a wonderful role for him. And he was really beautiful.
5: Yeah, I think in particular of the lovely scene um, at the the VFW where it's Cody's birthday and everyone's playing bingo. And there's just this really natural kind of rambling rapport between you and Dennehy and Lucas, but also the other actors um, in the scene that feels very natural, very conversational. I'm curious, like, is it work to get to that point where you guys can just kind of exist together um how scripted is that or is it improvisatory I'm just sort of curious about the makings of of scenes that feel just like a little snippet of real life
1: I think it just depends on you know the the people that you're with and the chemistry that you have um Working with Lucas, it was my first time playing a mom and having to work with a, a, a child actor. And and so the parents, you know, have to uh, be involved and be on set. But Lucas's mom was so great because she was so hands-off. She was there, but she was, like, tucked away somewhere. So I would be able to just talk to him and be able to have my own relationship with Lucas. And he's a very, very chatty kid, <laughs> you know, even though the... the, the uh, the character that he plays is a lot um, more reticent and, and just um, a little bit self-doubting, but um, he's not that way at all. And so we had a really nice relationship um, when you know we weren't doing scenes and just being able to talk to each other, and there was that that ease and comfort there. And the same thing with Brian. You know that bingo scene was just great because I loved um, all of the other. Uh, older actors who were there in the scene. Jerry Adler is just like the sweetest man. And um, it was, it didn't feel like, like because I was interacting with people who were so different in age from me, it didn't feel like um, I was alone or or, or needing company or or being needing to to speak to somebody.
5: So you shoot this tiny film upstate, you know, and then the job is over and you move on and then, you know, it premieres at something as massive as the Berlin Film Festival. What does that kind of translation feel? Were you, were you in Berlin when it premiered?
1: No, I didn't go. Um, but uh, Andrew and Lucas and the uh, writers, uh, Hannah and Paul went.
5: Does it feel strange, even if you're not there in person, to kind of let this little kind of baby out into the big, scary, you know, film festival world?
1: No, I want it to get out there. (laughs) I I want people to see it. I I was really happy um, for uh, Andrew that it got in and, you know, that it wasn't just going to, you know, disappear in the way that so many indie movies do. The one that I shot right before Driveways, you know, has still doesn't have distribution. It's just only been playing uh, at festivals. So, you know, we're we're really fortunate and lucky. And um, I'm just happy for Andrew, you know, that people are seeing his second feature. And, and I hope that, um, you know, it, this brings more eyeballs to his work and, and to his first feature as well.
5: Does knowing that some, unfortunately, some films just do fall by the wayside or get lost without distribution, does that... Um maybe ever daunt you when you're considering taking a job or, or uh, like, are you ever like, oh, well, what's the point if, you know, in the end it's possible, no one will see it? Or um, is that not not a way you think about approaching work?
1: Um, no, I don't think about whether the final product has a life. I think about whether it can be made at all in the way that, that um, it, It should be made. Um, Like I'll, I'll get offers um, for indie movies, and you know, I'll read the script. And sometimes I feel like just at the script level, it's not done. It needs more work. And then you combine that with, oh, maybe this is like a first time director. And so that's, you know, those two things together don't bode well. And then you hear what the budget is. And then you think, well, you can't possibly do (laughs) all of the things in this script for that amount of money. So then it, it becomes like, oh, you're just setting yourself up for failure. And that's, you know, it just, it's just not ready yet. It's like undercooked. So, you know, I'm, I'm always like rooting for those things to, to eventually work out and, and to figure themselves out. But um, no, I, I don't think about it in terms of, oh, is this the type of movie that's going to get into Sundance or uh, Berlin or, you know, anything like that? Or is this the, the thing that's going to uh, get into the awards conversation or something like that? It, that's just... Uh, a, you never know what the reception for a, a film is going to be, and then also, uh, for me, I'm just looking to have an experience, um, and and that might be because I'm interested with the working with the director, or I'm interested in taking on that type of role, or I'm interested in working with um, uh, the other actor who's um, attached or on board. So it, it's it's really um, everything other than what you just said.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, one experience, a recent experience of yours that I'm curious about is Watchmen, um, which I mentioned, you know, this big HBO miniseries that was not only viewed by a lot of people, but it got a ton of critical acclaim very justly, I think. How was Lady True, the character you play, um, presented to you? What what was the story of of your um, involvement with Watchmen?
1: Uh, I got a call that Damon Lindelof wanted to meet me for the show, and um, I think I asked to read the scripts first because I I said <laughs> I didn't want to do any comic book thing, <laughs> so, um, and and so then uh, I got the first four scripts uh, that they had completed for for the show, and they were just incredible and. I met with Damon after reading the scripts, and he explained his uh, vision for for the show and where he wanted it to go and what his intentions were with my character, because my character did, didn't appear until the fourth episode, so I didn't really know where else the character was going, so that's what he explained to me in person. I wasn't able to actually read the, the scripts for for um, the later episodes because they hadn't been written yet, but, you know, during during that meeting, he explained everything that was going on, and he was like, I hope that you're, um, you're I hope you'll accept and that it's it's interesting to you, and I was like, okay, you've just Told me a lot, you know, (laughs) and I just need some time to process it because I don't know if I can actually do what you're asking me to do. So, yeah, I took some time to think about it because the character, just from what he was explaining, sounded so out there, but for me, You know, I I don't I would love to play like a big character who's out there, but in order for me to feel confident that I can do it is that I actually need to see the words on the page, you know, Um, like even if you explain it to me, it's so abstract that I don't I don't really it's not really that helpful to me, if that makes sense. Like I actually have to see it in the context of the script in print.
5: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think. You know, I, I, I've i certainly talked to actors who have signed on to kind of big secretive things and have only read, you know, one little portion of the sides for their character, but have no idea where, you know, what the context is. And they always describe feeling a little lost in that. But but I guess what you're saying is that you had a little bit more guidance with, with Watchmen in mm-hmm. terms of where Lady True was headed in the, the larger narrative.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've definitely turned down that sort of situation you're talking about, too, where there, it's, you know, a big tentpole thing, but they won't let you read the script and it's like why on earth would I sign on to this thing when you're not even letting me read the script like how could I possibly like it's insane um so I don't know how people do it I mean but but they do so
5: (laughs) so when you did you watch the the finished product of Watchmen
1: I did yes
5: Did, did did what you see look like what had been sort of described to you or did it did it feel very different from from what you had imagined when you were filming it
1: um no I you know I feel like I don't actually really need to watch the final product of things anymore. Um, I, I did in the case of Watchmen um, uh, because there were I, I was interested in seeing the episodes that I wasn't in. But um, in terms of the things that I shoot, I I feel like I know what it is, and it and, you know it doesn't really um, it, it's not really necessarily gratifying to see the the final product. Um, that, that that probably sounds weird, but <laughs> I'm only interested in seeing the parts that I'm not in. So so yeah. that's why so I want. So you watch can fill things. in the
5: blanks. Of, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah.
5: Well, I mean, the whole was fantastic and I think you were such a crucial part of that. Um, so however it came together, it all, it all seemed to work very well. <laughs> um, and now you're headed to another sort of TV phenomenon miniseries um, with the upcoming season of, of Homecoming. Are you, I guess it kind of all actors at this point uh, sort of have to get used to jumping between film and television and streaming and whatever else, you know, but is there, is there is there a format you feel more at home in? Do you like doing the longer episodic stuff or the kind of, you know, two hour containment of a movie? movie where do you find that you tend to gravitate if you if you have the choice
1: if i had the choice i would i would do movies uh, more and the reason for that i know that everybody says that the acting work that you do is the same the whole process is the same and that i agree with but i do find that um with films there's just the Time moves differently. (laughs) You're able to have conversations about what you're doing, and it doesn't feel as rushed the way TV does. Um, You know, with something, I I was lucky with um, Watchmen and Homecoming in that the, the scripts were. Uh, ready to go, or, or more so with homecoming, because I, I got all seven scripts before we we started shooting, so I, I knew um, everything. But usually with episodic TV, you're getting the scripts as you go um, along, and and so you don't actually know where your character is going necessarily. So that you know makes it difficult. And in the case of Watchmen, even though I didn't have like the scripts yet, I, I still knew where the character was going. So that was. You know, comforting and nice, and and I was able to prepare in that way. Yeah, I just I just like um, being able to speak to just one person uh, about the character. You know, uh, on a film, I I only speak to the director. There's not like 15 people that I need to talk to if. You know, uh, I need something or if I have a, a question where I want to change something, you know, like on a TV show, if there's an issue with like my costume or wardrobe, it has it goes through like so many approval levels, you know, and eventually it gets done. But it's just like so many layers, you know, and so many, you know people that, that are involved in the process. And so that's probably the part that turns me off about working in episodic uh, television. But um, it was nice with Homecoming because we only had one director for the entire series. So that was that was nice. And then the same thing with the first season. Um, the first season was uh, directed by um, Sam and the second uh, season was uh, Kyle Patrick Alvarez. So it felt much better. Um, than than previous episodic work that I've done. Uh,
5: Which kind of makes me curious. I mean, something that we're asking people that we interview for this show um, during this time of quarantine, you know, what are you watching? Like, so uh, what do you tend to gravitate toward um, when you have some free time to sit down with something?
1: Honestly, I've mostly been watching the news or reading the news because I feel like at the very least I have to bear witness to the terrible job that's been done um, with the handling of all of this. So I, I just feel, it doesn't make me anxious, but I, I do feel like, you know, I, I just need to, to to stay with it and, and know what's going on. Um, I mean, I, I will, you know, squeeze in some reruns of like Seinfeld, um, <laughs> between, between, it between yeah, new, new segments. Yeah. Um, but the last thing that I watched was, uh, I, I did a double, double feature, uh, was, um, paper moon and what's up doc. And that was, that was really great. Um, those are both That's so interesting. Wonderful. You're not
5: the first person to tell me they watched What's Up, Doc during this uh, this period. I guess people are just gravitating toward that really? film for, for whatever reason. Actually, you
1: know. I, I'd seen Paper Moon um, several times before, but uh, I hadn't seen What's Up, Doc. And I remember I, I had a conversation with Joan Cusack, who I adore. We worked on, on Homecoming together. And she has a gift store in Chicago. Uh, named Judy Maxwell's Home Goods. And she was like, what? You haven't seen What's Up, Doc? And I was like, no, I haven't. She said, oh, you've got to see it. So um, I was thinking about Joan when (laughs) when that came up.
5: Yeah, it's it's been, I mean, if anything has been fun during this bizarre time, like it, it's offered, at least, you know, me and I'm sure many others a chance to kind of seek out movies like that that we missed and have always wanted to see. Or, you know, uh, we, we, we on this podcast, we recently all rewatched Casablanca and I had seen it when I was a kid, but it was nice to to have the time oh, to revisit yeah. it. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but of course, we would also urge viewers to seek out new things like Driveways, which um, is going to be available to rent online online. Uh, Soon, Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the sort of release schedule for this movie?
1: Oh, I think Driveways is available May 7th um, Mm -hmm. on Apple. And I think it's also um, you can go on the FilmRise website and find out the schedule for the because they have virtual screenings at the local theaters across the country, I think. So I think that's a way to to support both the movie and your local theater. And we're doing a virtual screening uh, with BAM on May 7th, and we'll be doing a Q&A afterwards on Zoom, which I've never used before, so we'll see how that goes. And Homecoming is available on on. Prime on May 22nd I think yeah so that, that's that's all of my promotional work that I need to do <laughs> that,
5: that was really well done that was expert um, and it's exciting that there's so much of your stuff soon available for people to watch um, it's always exciting to see what you do and uh, I can't wait to see what, what happens next after this is all over but in the meantime I urge everyone to seek out driveways watch one of those you know screenings that supports a local theater um, and Hong thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us
0: thank you Okay, that does it for this week's show. Uh, We are continuing to run on our Twitter our polls for what we will be rewatching next as we record this. uh, The poll for next week hasn't quite closed, but Amadeus has a very strong head start in our poll of best actor winning films. So more than likely, we'll be talking about Amadeus next week. In the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com. Uh, you can find Richard's review of Hollywood and lots of other things. Um, you can find us on Twitter, as mentioned, at little gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Mike.
3: Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylaz.
0: And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. Uh, and the award for what Brett tends to say if
4: I, Joanna Robinson, threaten to bring up Rocket Man again in 2020 goes to Katie Rich.
0: I will cut all of it out.